The Ulster Workers' Council Strike 1974, Part 5. Communists under the protection of the British Army. was now pressuring the power-sharing executive to compromise on the Council of Ireland because he had a plan to break the UWC. If successful, it would bitch him and expose the UWC as fascist thugs. It would free the hundreds of thousands of workers from their supposed grip, and as they flocked back to their workplaces and their masses, harmony would be restored, the situation recalibrated back into a circumstance which British and Irish policy planners could recognise, and the present incomprehensible unpleasantness would be chased back to where it belonged, back into the Protestant ghettos of Belfast. You see, Merlin Rees had taken notice of an initiative from the shop stewards meeting on that Saturday, calling on the General Secretary of the British TUC, Len Murray, to come to Belfast and lead the proposed back-to-work marches in order to break the strike. Len Murray, who was 52 and a lifelong trade unionist, was a national figure. His face was known to everybody in Britain, a war veteran, wounded on the beaches in Normandy, and a former member of the Communist Party. He had risen through the trade union ranks to become the national voice of the Trade Union Congress, which gave him huge prominence in the socialist world of 1974. If there was any man the strikers would listen to, and the UWC reeled from, it was the face of the trade union movement himself. On Saturday the 17th of May 1974, 250 shop stewards had gathered for a meeting in the King George V's Hall near Belfast City Hall. They had only one item on their agenda, how to return to work. Glenn Barr, the chairman of the UWC, learning of the meeting, sent union organisers aligned and supporting the UWC to listen in and report back. Barr, as Fisk is quick to point out, was himself a branch president of the Amalgamated Engineering Union. The UWC Coordinating Committee knew the recommendations before their opponents, headed by the anti-UWC trade union leader Billy Blees, had reported back to Reese that the shop stewards had voted to send an immediate invite to Len Murray. Len Murray received the appeals and agreed forthwith to lend his prominence and national voice to the strike breakers' endeavours and to bring back the supposed more progressive thinking majority of Protestant workers who merely wanted to work. This caused the greatest apprehension the UWC men would face during the stoppage. At 5pm on the eve of the back-to-work marches, Merlin Reese held a meeting with the security chiefs. Reese met with General Frank King and other senior army officers who were ordered to keep the main arterial routes open and lend protection to the flocks of returning workers. It was decided that 1,500 British soldiers, along with several hundred police, were to man and line the main routes to facilitate the return of the intimidated to work. The Northern Ireland office went to unprecedented lengths putting a lot of hope into this repost of the strikers, this counter-strike to assist what they thought was the silent loyal majority. Backing the march, Brand Faulkner would write later, they promised to clear the roads and asked employers to respond by making sure all the factories and places of work were open. This idea had accorded with Merlin Rees' progressive socialist worldview and he took to the idea with a certain aplomb. 
and this plan was ingenious. Twice on the Monday before the marches, Rees met with Len Murray in Belfast and spoke to him at great length, certain now that the progressive silent majority had now spoken and that the way back the relative normality was clear. Brian Garrett also met Murray in his role as the head of the Northern Ireland Labour Party. He voiced his concerns and his fears that this was a national protest and Murray was being sold a pup. But that was not what everybody else was telling Murray. Murray was a courageous man and a lifelong champion of workers' rights and the basic right to work for all, and he went into it all uncritically. With the back-to-work marches now funded and underwritten by the British government, advertisements for the march were placed in all the papers. It was heralded in frequent news bulletins. Len Murray himself would be there, the people of Northern Ireland were told, to support the intimidated. The marches were advertised as taking place from Queen's Quay to the shipyard and from Grand Parade to the Castle Ray Industrial Estate. All comers welcome. Marches setting off at 7.45am sharp. Don't be late. The crooks had come and the battle lines were drawn. And yet the Labour Party in 1974 were caught up in the thinking that in Ulster there was a silent majority of Protestants who saw the world in the terms they did of social and material betterment only, who would think foremost of material advantages and the money in their pockets. They saw them in purely English terms that in essence economic parity and the money in your wallet defined the man. Ulster people might share a language, a passport and a set of television channels with the English but that was it. It was a very, very different culture, and that difference was soon to come to the fore to the bewilderment of the Labour left, and the day came. Tuesday the 21st of May, 1974, day 7 of the strike was to be a turning point, but not in the way that the powers that be had in mind. Everything had been put in place. There were to be two back-to-work marches, and international cameras were present, drawn by the publicity and the towering presence of the General Secretary of the British Trades Union Congress himself. Many of the UWC leaders were genuinely worried, fully understanding that this new ploy could break them. If enough workers were seen to go back into the factory gates, the rest might follow, concluding that the strike was a lost cause and their alleged mandate would be utterly discredited. They watched with charged anxiety as the day's events unfolded. The UDA had set out their plans in the newsletter the day before. As Faulkner states succinctly, the UDA responded by saying that all the main roads would be blocked from 6am except for medical vehicles and that people would be well advised to stay at home and make no attempt to go to work or school. As Fisk relates, at around 6 o'clock, with a stiff wind blowing down off Black Mountain over the near-deserted city, a column of Humber-engined armoured vehicles thundered over the Queen's Bridge onto the flyover on the East Quay, accompanied by a convoy of RUC meat wagons. In a matter of minutes, 200 soldiers of the Royal Regiment of Wales had taken up their position near the shipyard opposite the railway station on the viaduct and on the bridge over the lagging. A heavy preponderance of senior officers and the brigadiers of the 39th Brigade were there, with the police watching events from under the flyover, waiting for the shipyard workers, emboldened by the presence of Murray and the marchers, to swarm back in their many thousands and end this madness. Surrounded by the press and television cameras, with large sound booms in front of his face, flanked by Billy Blees of the Republican Trotskyite Irish Congress of Trade Unions, and Andy Barr, the Communist Chairman of the Shipbuilding and Engineering Union, the Communist Party of Ireland, by the way, supported a united Ireland without the consent of Protestants. Murray gave his sound bites. The British Socialists, when it came to Ulster Protestants, allowed them nothing. British Socialists are victims to two diseases not unique to the English. Self-referential assurances and an assumption that people who share an English language thought like they did. Had he or Rees taken the time to ask ordinary Protestants, he would have realised that he had flanked himself with two targets Ulster Protestants hated both pro-United Ireland and both in their eyes communist enemies. This is not a strike, Len Murray was telling the reporters in his nasal version of a Shropshire accent. 
As he kept turning to peer across the bridge, scanning it for the swarms of workers he confidently expected to be joining him. It is a stoppage of work imposed by an unrepresentative group of people on the vast mass of Northern Ireland who want to go to work today and tomorrow and all the time. Instead of the thousands upon thousands of grateful fraternal fellow workers, a bare hundred drifted over the bridge to be surrounded immediately by British soldiers in riot gear with battens and purse-back shields and into the blur of television cameras and waiting reporters. At eight o'clock that morning, a major asked Murray when he wanted to start his march and peering back at the bridge, he asked for a delay. He bought time by dwelling on the good Northern Irish trade unionists had done by keeping sectarianism off the shop floor. On the UWC side, Murray, Barr and Petrie, all senior trade unionists themselves would have agreed. Indeed, at one stage, the UWC had even debated whether the British Trade Union Congress could be sounded out to mediate their complaints, and this appeal would have inevitably involved Len Murray. But now the lines were drawn, and as Murray watched a few stragglers, men and women, cross the bridge, past soldiers squatting with rifles on the balustrade, he turned back to assess the calibre of those who were in the ranks behind him. He had managed to secure only 200 or so people, but amongst those assembled in solidarity behind him, very few of them were actually shipyard workers. The Reverend Joseph Parker was there with his small following and his Witness for Peace banner with crosses for every person so far murdered in the Troubles, now totalling 1,024, including his 14-year-old son. Sadie Patterson was there of the Cross Community Women Together movement. These were all indisputably admirable, well-meaning people, but they were pressure groups, nothing more, come to what we would call today Virtue Signal but all of them openly supported the executive and Sunningdale and by implication the Council of Ireland. And even worse, many of those were so far to the left that they were signatories of the Troops Out movement, which put them on the opposite side of the spectrum from the strikers, as it gave them the appearance of supporting Irish republicanism. To Murray it was becoming clear that this whole endeavour was becoming an absolute embarrassment played out in front of the international media. What he had been assured would happen was not happening, so what was going wrong? Then the crowds did appear and converged in an eye embarrassed Len Murray, but they weren't coming to join him, they were coming for him. Whilst gangs of tartan youths swarmed and blocked off the shipyard gates, the objective of the march, a group of what Fisk estimates is 150, composed of women and youths, mostly tartans, turned and approached Murray's marchers from the direction of the railway station, bearing the Ulster banner and singing the sash. The sash is a song every Protestant knows, they sing it amongst themselves or in the face of perceived enemies, but rarely in front of outsiders lest to defend. Whilst they made for Murray and his associates, shouting abuse and insults, the army blocked them. A few broke off as others joined them and made for the flyover, as the RUC alighted en masse from their meat wagons to intercept them. Fist describes one woman standing on the road singing all of Derry's Walls, another Ulster Protestant song of defiance, before crossing the Amman on the edge of the march, shouting no surrender and spitting in his face. The tartan youths hurling threats at the blacklegs who had turned up for work were redirected by a man in a combat jacket to the shipyard gates, and so the pathetic little band made their way, flanked by RUC officers and protected by British soldiers. And as their diddly procession reached the shipyard gates, pieces of metal piping were hurled and cluttered around Len Murray, flanked now by a senior army officer from the Royal Welsh Regiment and other senior officers. A line of RUC officers now formed between the small band of marchers and the baying crowds, mostly of women, in what became a very undignified melee of heaving, shoving, pushing and hurled threats. They came under a rain of tomatoes. They were hit by a shower of rotten eggs, followed by a hail of stones. Andy Barr, chairman of the shipbuilding and engineering workers, a Republican and natural target of the strikers, was sappled with rotten eggs and tomato pulp. 
Len Murray was crouched in to the point that he could not use his arms, and seeing an opening, an old woman in a spotted headscarf broke free and grabbed Andy Barr by the lapels and started to attack him. The soldiers at the front formed a wedge against the surrounding hostile crowds to protect Murray, but even with all this, a working-class Protestant woman still got close enough to hiss and spit full in his face. And as all this was happening, a voice boomed from the baying crowd of protesters. You're communists getting the protection of the British army. Why don't you come out and fight us? Even with the army and police flanking their progress, the marchers struggled through the manhandling, the pelting and the white fury until they had finally made it through the gates and most half collapsed with a mixture of relief and shock. The Protestant protesters remained outside, jeering the few strike breakers who sought to sneak past them into the shipyard by car. But behind all this commotion and fury, Fisk reports commuters were happily and obliviously decanting from the Queen's Quay railway station, their papers tucked under their arms on their way to the few places of work left open. They were scrupulously unmolested by the shrill baying mob that had so terrified Len Murray. Once he recovered his composure, Murray proceeded to address the workers, half consoling them with his assurance that he now fully understood the nature of the intimidation that the workers of Belfast faced. But, as Don Anderson states, the man was visibly shaken. In his head, he must have been certain that this was all going to play out so differently. In the scenario fed to him by Reese and Orm, he should have been by now shaking hands, being lauded for his courage, while addressing the rest of the workers and the television cameras, that the intimidation was at an end and they could all now safely come to work. So much for the socialist Moses. And while all this was going on, by the way, on the other side of Queen's Bridge, opposite the British Rail Car Ferry Terminal, another swarm of Ulster Protestant women sat on the road to stop all traffic coming over the bridge. And now the news came in of the second march at Castle Ray, which had fared even more dismally. As the Belfast Telegraph reported, troops in riot gear took up position in Grand Parade before the march got on the way when it looked as though trouble was about to break out. And at the Castle Ray roundabout, only yards from the marchers' route, hijacked lorries were used to block the road. The security forces protecting the second march outnumbered the returning workers by 10 to 1. Robin Glenn Denning of the Alliance Party admitted that he was disappointed by the turnout and called for one the next day now that people could see and hear reports of a heavy military presence. And then he shouted his frustration into the cameras that it was time that the wizard Merlin Reese got his finger out and got the barricades down. It was missed on nobody that the barricades were still there. In fact, there was one man defiantly by the strikers not 50 metres from the Castlereagh March assembly point. Archibald Caulfield, the manufacturing manager of IEL, waiting at his factory gate for an influx of his returning workers after indicating a surprise and disappointment as a bare 17 men and two women walked past him on their way through his factory gates, commented with almost masterful understatement, this does not seem to have been the answer to the problem. Glenn Barr stood watching the second march in the company of other UWC men, all cock a hoop at the debacle. The Belfast Telegraph reported, Among the many bystanders was Mr Glenn Barr, Vanguard Unionist Assemblyman for Londonderry, who described himself as Coordinating Chairman of the Ulster Workers Committee. He claimed that the march proved that the Northern Committee of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions did not represent the workers of the province. But his next comment would send a shudder through Whitehall and send Reese scurrying for legal advice as to whether certain of the leadership of the UWC, Barr included, could be arrested and charged with high treason. We are, Glenn Barr told the eager international journalists around him, certainly in a position to set up a provisional government. 
That is my personal opinion. But when asked if the province was on the verge of a takeover, he said he would not commit himself that far. Mr. Reese is in a position whereby he can come back and offer us talks, and we are quite prepared to take this up. Barr's words were incendiary, but he clearly had taken legal advice from one of their own number and carefully and cunningly skirted around the offence of high treason. Carefully and cunningly, just like every other decision he deployed during the strike. And as for the strike breakers led into the shipyard, Faulkner calls it a futile gesture in his memoirs. And why? There was nothing he relates anybody could have done when they got to work because there was no power available for industry. This fiasco, Faulkner concludes, simply provided another victory for the UWC and another humiliation for authority. But one net result of the back-to-work marches fiasco was that the UWC no longer had any doubts about the mass support they had amongst the Ulster Protestant people. Those among the Protestant middle and upper classes who were still wavering and instinctively disdained mob rule, despite years of being bombed without relent, watched the credibility of the British government dissolve and lost many of their inhibitions that day, many now giving voice to their support for this very unique rebellion. The question was not really whether the back-to-work marches would fail. The question was, what were they thinking? It is hard to have any sympathy for Len Murray. He suffered from the same hubris as the inner socialist circle that ran the organs of the British state and socialised over tea and sandwiches at their tripartite meetings in Whitehall. They were locked into a worldview of a secularism mixed with a lazy complacency that disdained nationalism and took the view that if Ulster Protestants showed any signs of it, they did not deserve it and that if it existed in Ulster, it could only exist among a minority of die-hard fascists. To them, Ulster Protestants were, in short, an inconvenient people in the way of an inevitable United Ireland. And Merlin Rees and Stanley Orme, who invited Liam Murray, had no excuse. They had met these people, the UWC had tried to reason with them, as had the politicians, as had the paramilitaries, and they had all been shut out in favour of this socialist worldview, the British rulers believing they knew better. The majority of Ulster Protestants, they reasoned, employed as they were in heavy industry, must form a vast reservoir of neutral, progressive socialists. Their aim, therefore, was to tap into the sentiment of the silent, vast majority, who, as the dismal failure of the strike showed, simply did not exist. What they did not understand was the extent of the existential threat felt to their very existence by a people barely a million strong. What they failed to comprehend was that this people had their own culture, and risked being swallowed into a hostile larger nation, aligned to the minority that lived among them in their state, which had made no provision for them, had no place for them, and had centuries of history to avenge. As Fisk concluded at the time, it was not only lack of foresight that crippled them, they had failed to look for any concrete evidence to support the notion that trade union solidarity could stand up the generations of Protestant solidarity, especially when this was mixed up with suspicions of the union executive's political motives. Len Murray's fault was that he was all too ready to believe what he was being told and too arrogant to make his own inquiries. What resulted, therefore, was a trade union leader on that cold May morning wandering into the midst of a national rebellion in full swing, trying to bring succour to what the majority of Ulster Protestants saw as their implacable enemies and to frustrate their last-ditched attempt to make their own voices heard. Had they looked at the position objectively, they would have understood the real dynamic of trade union activism in a fragmented Northern Ireland. Of the 265,000 members of trade unions, only 40,000 or so belonged to British trade unions. It chafed with Protestants that although they could attend the British TUC conferences as delegates, they could not vote. 
Instead, their executive called the Northern Committee lay with the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, which was Irish Republican and Trotskyite, and another All-Ireland institution foisted on them. The Northern Committee was also a very nationalist organisation, and in its coloration and outlook, being an unhappy bedfellow in Ulster institutions, it failed by trying to be all things to all men, and thus the real authority was delegated to junior union conveners and shop stewards, mostly Protestant, who did not share any of this outlook. This anomaly was even raised with the New English readers at Stormont Castle, but they ignored the entire argument. In fact, in the very same week as the abortive back to work march, Andy Barr, who had grappled with a demonstrator on Queen's Quay, was a signatory to the Irish Sovereignty Movement's annual conference, which called for an end to British occupation in Northern Ireland. Yet he apparently saw nothing inconsistent in marching past lines of British soldiers if they were protecting him on his way to work. Orm and the other left-wing MPs just did not understand this split in the trade union movement, and that is why they ended up implying that the Protestants of Ulster were all incipient fascists. And the biggest victim of all this almost imperial arrogance was Len Murray. The UWC issued a triumphant sheet bulletin in which they stated, The fact that Rees and Orm risked so much of their credibility on the success of the trade union return to work shows that they are politically inept rather than malicious. If they had done less of the Colonial Administrator Act and had done a bit more to find out something about the relation of the official trade union leadership to the political views of the trade union rank and file, they would not have expected the return to work to be anything less than a fiasco. Len Murray appealed to workers to heed the call of their tried and trusted leaders to return to work. Mr Murray must now realise that the official trade union leadership are not the tried and trusted leaders of the workers in anything but the narrowest trade union affairs. In Britain, there is at least a general identity of broad political sympathy between the TUC and the massive trade unionists. That is not so in Northern Ireland. Andy Barr, chairman of the Shipbuilding Confederation, and Jimmy Graham of the AEU, led the back-to-work campaign. They are anti-partitionists, pro-Irish Republicans, but the mass of their members are unionists. And we hope that Mr Murray will take the trouble to find out why he walked into the shipyards along with these workers, tried and trusted leaders, and a bare 150 men. Thus emboldened with the expressions of widespread support, now was the time for the Ulster Workers' Council to do a counter-strike of their own. And it was a move verging on genius. As fiscal relates, Smith and Murray had a new screw to tighten, much more effective than barricades, because shortly after 5.30 that same day, Sammy Smith was interviewed by the local BBC radio during a special strike programme. He was speaking on the telephone and his voice sounded gravelly and sinister. We feel, he said, as the phone line crackled and hissed over the air, that there has been so much intransigence from the Northern Ireland office with regard to the demand for an election that there must be an escalation of the stoppage. And the UWC took a decision that we will have an embargo on oil and petrol supplies. Sammy Smith, the UWC propaganda officer, should have laid out the full genius of the plan because there was little at the time anybody could do to stop them. The logic was this. If you control the petrol, people need passes to get the petrol and the only place the users could get passes was by the authority of the UWC and he who issued the passes became the de facto authority which, in the absence of central authority, the entire nation, from the CBI representatives to the farmers to the bus and haulage and postal workers, would have to turn. Fisk sums this logic up beautifully and succinctly when he observes not even the British Army at that time had worked out the obvious equation that without petrol there would be no cars and without cars there would be no need for barricades. The UWC knew that in the wake of the back to work marches fiasco that they could do it. 
They had the complete allegiance of the workers in Sydney oil refinery. They had the support of most of the tanker drivers and they controlled the roads in Protestant areas. And they had the full support of the owners of the petrol stations they had designated within Loyalist heartlands. The executive went in the emergency session in what the Belfast Telegraph called a top-level conference. This took the form of an emergency coordinating committee with the ministers of Manpower, Industry and the Environment, meeting with Stan Orm, the Secretary of State. There was now a clear crisis. The UWC had effectively taken the ground from under their feet within a day. At the same time the power-sharing executive were in emergency session, the UWC were now intimately involved in the running of the country through eagerly gobbled up issued press releases and strike broadsheet bulletins and press interviews. And now they were meeting with the chief executives of the main oil companies who ran the petrol stations such as Shell, BP, MC and Burma. The, the companies have come to an understanding with the UWC, the Belfast Telegraph informed its readers on the front page, directly below the report of the tortuous exertions of the executive, that, quote, they can deliver with difficulty to the hospitals, etc., as long as they do not try to slip supplies to what the UWC consider to be non-essential users. The petrol companies had agreed, according to the paper, to deliver to the essential services with the blessing of the Ulster Workers' Council and say supplies should be adequate. A few filling stations will be supplied, the Belfast Telegraph assured its readers disingenuously, but the fuel companies say that supplies at these will be only for doctors and other medical personnel and ambulances. The UWC have also made provision for supplies to get through to the fire services. Anderson reports that at one stage, an oil company executive criticised the UWC for refusing to supply the police and army, given their supposed sense of allegiance to Britain. But there it was. As for the general car driver, a Belfast Telegraph journalist speculated that how these petrol stations will be selected is not as yet known, but petrol companies say that private motorists should be realistic and leave supplies available for those who need them. A new petrol supply system came into being within a day. And where did they get such a bold idea? They probably got it from a petrol plan exhumed from the records for John Hume, the Ministry of Commerce, to pour over. And it was probably carried to them by a member of Faulkner's own executive, Roy Bradford, who was now publicly wavering in the support for the executive. Nor was their plan sectarian, as their detractors suggest. They deferred to the experts among their number in its implementation. As Anderson states, two shop stewards representing the oil industry went to Hoffenden Road and on a large map plotted a filling station approximately every nine miles to which petrol would be supplied under UWC auspices. They included garages and Catholic areas and they took care to choose garages belonging to different companies on a repeating pattern. The oil shop stewards were given a free hand in this exercise. The coordinating committee was beginning to act like a government, making policy decisions and leaving it to what he called civil servants, in inverted commas, to execute. The main purpose of the supply of fuel was first and foremost the paramilitaries and those supporting the strike to keep them mobile. But Anderson goes on to say, as the secondary function at the time of the plan's inception was to supply people issued with UWC passes for essential services. Every person who drew up at a UWC pump was vetted and asked for the UWC pass. Many were turned away by the UWC inspector, he says, who obviously could call upon foot soldiers of the UWC to effect the removal and end any recrimination swiftly. But this system, hastily instituted, and with the earnestness of men executing it in the spirit of rigid directives from the UWC, led to some anomalies and some openly farcical decisions on the ground by men who had not been through the civil service entrance exams. And as we shall see, the actual civil servants who were to be employed by the government, assuming the same role a few days later, made equally idiotic mistakes. 
In their own terms, Anderson concludes, the UWC operation in the filling stations was successful. Up until Sunday evening, the UWC claimed to have supplied 142 stations. Fisk, also an eyewitness, puts it at 56. Also, with UWC approval, the Belfast refinery had 120 tankers on the road, supplying these stations between Friday the 24th of May and the evening of Sunday the 26th of May. This was a level of activity not far short of what the Oil Industry Emergency Committee estimated would be needed to supply its own ends. That the UWC had finally established control over all forms of energy, over transport, farming and commerce, was now an unavoidable fact. Harry Murray, Fisk goes on to relate, perhaps aware that history would scrutinise his actions, dispatched the first truck to the Catholic Falls, the heartland of the provisional and official IRA. It was a gesture which, typically, impressed David O'Connell, the provisional IRA's chief of staff and the provisional's only potential political leader. Other petrol tankers on Thursday and Friday, the 23rd and 24th of May, made their way to garages and Protestant streets owned by UDA officers. In the old park, Terry and other UDA men, together with a UVF escort, followed one petrol tanker from the Shankle to ensure its safe arrival at the designated station. The tanker arrived, but only after a crowd of uniformed men had assembled on the forecourt, ready to vet the motorist's credentials. The Belfast Telegraph gives an example of a son refused petrol by the paramilitaries because he was unable to produce proof. He reported that his father then went down with the requisite evidence of his bakery business and he had, quote, no trouble getting petrol. He even openly commended the process as orderly. Ministerial cars would no longer run for lack of petrol and chauffeurs were reduced to borrowing and siphoning or begging the army to allow them some of their supplies. But this made little difference. The ministers they served were now being helicoptered in daily by the army from the nearby British military bases for cabinet meetings afraid of the roadblocks. As Fisk relates, soon a long queue of men and women, at times three deep, were lining the pavements of the narrow tree-lined road shepherded into order by a gang of long-haired youths wearing UVF badges. They were doctors, nurses, businessmen, small shopkeepers, even civil servants who had come as supplicants to the strike headquarters in order to plead for the right to carry on with their jobs. Some wanted permission to keep their shops open and so avoid the wrath of UDA squads. Others wanted permission to drive around the city because they worked on essential services. Most came for a small piece of cardboard which came to mean both money and livelihoods for thousands of people during those two weeks in May. It consisted of an old vanguard ticket with a party symbol and the red hand of Ulster on one side and the signature of two UWC leaders on the other. They were passes which allowed the bearer to buy petrol, to keep his business open, to move through the barricades without hindrance and they were strictly rationed. Even the head of the UDA, Andy Terry, had to carry a pass signed by himself. At the beginning, the signatures were mostly Patterson's and Terry's, but afterwards, most of the passes have Harry Murray's scrawling signature on them. This was, after all, his brainchild. The long line of people, Fisk reported, slowly moved up to the entrance of the Vanguard headquarters in Hawthorndon Road, where a narrow chain across a dirt track leading into the neo-Gothic building was guarded by two more UVF men. Each time a visitor left with or without a pass, the next candidate was grudgingly allowed to walk through the barrier to a small shed at the back of Craig's Vanguard Party headquarters to plead his case. So great was the demand that the UWC eagerly set up another office in Hawthornden Road and then more offices around the Protestant areas of the province, even in Orange Halls, turned into emergency food centres. Immediately there was an eager crush and a constant demand for passes, which were promptly issued to emergency workers. Fisk, who visited Hawthornden Road a day later, 
had a sudden disturbing revelation at the dynamic that was going on amongst Ulster Protestants and it amazed him. He relates concisely, but there was a more disturbing element in the queue outside Hawthornden Road. It was not the length of it, nor even the time it took for each man and woman to be processed by the UWC. It was the fact, becoming more evident by the hour, that many of those waiting patiently along the pavement showed no obvious signs of hostility towards the strikers. The well-dressed shopkeepers reading their copies of the morning's newsletter, the school teachers, the grocers, the department store officials who had come up from Belfast were cracking jokes with the UVF youths and by Wednesday afternoon they included representatives of some of the largest companies in Belfast. The manager of a British firm which owned a factory on the south side of the city could actually be found standing at the chain at the front of the Vanguard headquarters exhorting people to stick it out because Faulkner's executive would soon collapse. At this stage of the day, Hawthornden Road had become impassable to traffic because of a line of rovers and smart executive cars parked along the pavements. Indeed, the British Army trucks who travelled the streets at infrequent intervals, the soldiers stirring uninterestedly from the back at the queue of people, could for nearly half an hour not squeeze between those vehicles. This concludes, and as eyewitness account is worth quoting at length, the middle class, traditionally supporters of the status quo and orderly government, had turned their backs on the executive. And thus, a rented house in a suburb of South Belfast became the de facto provisional government Ulster Protestants gave their allegiance to. And within days, supermarkets in the Belfast suburbs all sent officials to negotiate with the UWC. Supermac, one of the city's largest shopping complexes in Newton Bread, opened only between 2pm and 6pm in accordance with the UWC instructions. Representatives of the city's dairy and bakery firms personally talked to the men at Hawthornden Road. They included the management of the Ingalls and Ormo bakeries as well as Northern Dairies. And some of the big industrial concerns were talking directly to Hawthornden Road themselves. They included Shorts Brothers Aircraft Factory and Sirocco Ropeworks. Very soon there were negotiations going on between the Chamber of Trade and the county downtown of Bangor and arrangements had been made between the UWC and Sherwood Medical Industries to allow essential hospital equipment, free movement on the roads. BP and Shell were talking by telephone to the UWC and Pagels was in direct contact with the grain mills of Belfast. The hydrogen gas industry was asking the UWC for permission to resupply the electricity service and the Ulster Farmers Union and the Nationalised Milk Marketing Board were subservient to the loyalist Protestant strikers. John Linden, the Milk Marketing Board Chairman in Belfast, went on the radio to thank the UWC for their assistance five days later. I found them reasonable enough people to talk to, he said. We're not talking about the bully boy on the street. They're a different kettle of fish. But I think it has only been by the good graces of these people that our industry has survived up to this point. Shopkeepers who had spent their lives building up a grocery store or haberdashery were prepared to wait at the chain barrier on the orders of youths who could scarcely write their own name, says Fisk, to obtain the UWC passes, the ultimate symbol of political power. Fisk marvels. From that moment on, Petrie's workers' strike was also a middle-class phenomenon. But do not be misled. This was a coalition of different interests in support of the recognition of the voice of their nation. Like most diverse interests and classes, the sense of their nation was all they had in common. They were united in this exasperation for the length of the threat to their identity only. Fisk adds an anecdote which proves the point. He watched Harry West, the new leader of the traditional Ulster Unionist Party, drive up and park at the driveway of Hawthornden Road. Finding out he had a flat tyre, 
He scanned the young UVF men around him, expectantly for help. Instead, they just leered and looked at each other. And West, as Fisk observed, the direct political descendant of Viscount Lord Brookborough, Lord Craig Avon, and the Prime Ministers of Ulster, knelt down on the gravel yard and himself mended his tire. Clearly, few of those involved in the strike wanted the old reconstituted Stormont Parliament back, with all the evils that entailed. 